I welcome. We have today with us Michelle Rias from Washington. Michelle and I have met only recently, but straight away we had this connection and I'm excited to have you here today um, with us and to share your unapologetically successful story of your life where you achieved and raised to the top in professional and personal life. It's very exciting. Welcome. And I'll let you to introduce yourself and then we'll go into our conversation of what was happening and how the journey evolved. Thank you so much, Susanna. First of all, I am so excited to be here with you because who doesn't want to be unapologetically successful? I love the concept of the podcast. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think you are going to have so much success very quickly because people are going to flock to want to talk to you to understand what are those factors that go into having a successful life. I'm honored to be here. I I have a really, probably a humble beginning story, but it's led to so many really great adventures. And that's what's been exciting. I was born in a very small town in New England, in the state of Maine, to very young teenage parents. And statistically speaking, I should probably not be living the life I live right now. Statistically speaking, it was unlikely that I would leave my small town and probably would have been married and having children very young myself because that's usually the pattern that's repeated. But I'm the oldest of three and my parents, albeit very young, saw it as their responsibility to instill a lot of foresight in me and my siblings to think big and really planted the seeds of greatness in us early. And the expectation was, despite the fact that I came from very humble beginnings or there wasn't a lot of money, no one else had gone to college before, that I would be the first. And there were not gonna be any excuses. A failure was not an option. So I think by the time I was six, I already knew that my responsibility and the birthright in the family was I had to pave the path. So I took my studies very seriously. I also saw that it made my parents incredibly happy. It was, a, I think, a very common thing. You want to please your parents when you're young. And for me, bringing home progress reports and report cards with A's on them early in their very early days resulted in them being incredibly proud and so that sort of began the process of this feels good. They're happy. I'm happy. They're proud of me. I'm excited that they feel good about this. It makes me feel like the sacrifices they're making are worth it. They were 16 and 18 when they had me. They didn't go on to college as a result of raising three small children in quick succession and needing to work many jobs to make ends meet. And because they didn't have that higher education, it was really difficult to break out of what was, I don't know if it, I'd call it poverty, but it was very lower middle class. You're stuck and there weren't a lot of options. So education became the ticket and they pushed it hard and they supported it. And they knew I was very independent minded. I went through all of my elementary school and secondary school, top of my class. I knew before I graduated that I would go on to a great university, even though I didn't know anybody who had. That was just going to be up to me to figure out. And so I was just driven. I was driven and I knew the story that we kept saying is I'm going to be successful and I'm going to be the first. And that is my job. I was doing international relations and economics and I wanted to be focused on Spanish as well as a major. And they said, impossible because you never studied and everyone is going to have six years ahead of you. Yeah. That's going to be a major. And so that was just another something else to achieve. So I graduated top of my class in Spanish. Like I, I was a major, I convinced them to let me do it anyway. So there were just a lot of proving if somebody said no, then I would reconvene with me. Usually my parents, they said, no, they're like, well, what are you going to do about that? I'm like, prove them wrong. Let's do it. And I'd roll up my sleeves and get to work. I developed a great deal of grit and perseverance. I would work harder. I would go longer. And it was like the typical tortoise and hare. It didn't take me long to catch up. And that became my path. Like I was going to prove everyone wrong that there was a little bit of stigma when I started 
from professors who are like, go easy on yourself. You don't have the same kind of background these other kids do with pedigree, which was highly offensive and hurtful. And if anything, it just annoyed me and made me more determined to prove them wrong and that it didn't, but it created a little bit of a chip on the shoulder, which I think if you're going to be competitive, you need to be able to say, what are you telling me? This is crazy. There is so much gold in this. I've now interviewed a few people and that ticket of you will be the first, which means go for it, whatever you're doing, is so important for a parent to give to a child because the child actually does does need that encouragement and the freedom. There are no boundaries. Go for it. And failure was not an option, which successful people have few things in common. They have grit is definitely one of them. And they are really positive or optimistic people. And for you, failure is not an option. Is I will find a way how to succeed. I'll just work Always. a little, which is amazing. It was scary at times. I will hand it to you. The reality is sometimes it was daunting because they didn't see a path. But to your point, I had to create a path. And so there was something very empowering about going, I don't really know exactly how it's supposed to happen. And since I didn't know, I created my own path in many ways, which was helpful because I didn't feel constrained to follow in somebody else's footsteps. I don't know if I had come into a different order in my family, if I would have gone to Europe and pushed to study languages. But for me, it was really important. Nobody was there to say no, or it hadn't been done, or I did this instead. So I was writing a lot of the the future for what my siblings ended up doing. For me, I just had so much of what's in my head to imagine that I want. And then how can I get there? And interestingly, who could help me? Because I didn't have those people at my disposal immediately around me. So I really did start to seek people out. And I would ask anybody. My coming to Washington is almost miraculous in many ways. And I ended up coming to Washington for an internship that was because I had the willingness to say, I really want to live in an international city in the States. And to me, that's Washington, DC. So who do I know? How can I arrange it that I can find a way to get paid to be there? And I didn't have a place to live. So I called up my university and said, who do we have who are alumni that live in Washington, DC? And can I have their phone numbers so I can see whether or not they have a room that I can rent for the summer? And not only did I get a room, but I didn't pay rent because they were so moved by the fact that I would start phoning alumni to say, who lives here and can I find a place to stay I so I can well. do this internship? They were like, come live at our house. It's fine. Like our kids are grown. So I met people that way. Probably not unlike some of the things that you did that ended up. There was a family that took me in for a summer who had a beach house. So they took me under their wings. And next thing I knew, I had a beach house at my disposal. I had incredible space to myself. Some of the people I worked with became friends, but also just beyond that, I found alumni from my university that were living. And that kind of created this bug where I knew before I even went back for my senior year of college, Washington was on my list of places to return. So by the time I was in the spring of my senior year, I was getting calls from Washington, D.C. if somebody who had heard about me through somebody and would I interview for a consulting job? Would I be interested? And I was graduating into a recession in the early 90s. So yeah, I'd come and interview for a job. Like nobody was getting jobs. So yeah. I was spring break of my senior year, they said, we'll fly you down from Maine, come interview. And I said, it's my senior year. My friends are going to Florida. Would you mind flying me down to Florida after that? And they were like, sure. I got them to fly me to Florida for my spring break and I got the job. So that was the good part. But you now you had to be willing to ask. I had nothing to lose. And the reality is I had no money of my own, really. I had money for my living expenses in college. So I was building from scratch. So everything that I did, I 
politely and diplomatically pushed the envelope. It was, it just made things a little bit easier for me. And then after that, I, I just was on a track of what more and what next. And I had such a love for Europe. So I started applying for scholarships, even though I had a job offer in DC. I immediately started looking for graduate school possibilities. Who will pay me to go to graduate school? So I started my job and was interviewing for this graduate post that would be paid for through Rotary International. And much to my surprise, I won because I was going up against med students that wanted to go save the world and cure AIDS in Africa. And they were businessmen. So I spoke their language. They actually thought I was more suited and aligned for the opportunity than the med students, which I didn't know at 21. I saw these older, more mature kids with really purpose-filled lives ahead of them and thought, this is a long shot, but I better go in with guns blazing if I really want this and really put it on. How did you even know about that it existed? What was the trigger? What was that thought that, oh, this is something I should explore? It stumbled. And I think I just, I stumbled onto it. Honestly, I just started telling the universe, I'm going to go back to Europe. I'm going to live in Spain again. And I don't know yet how, but I know what I want. And so then the more I looked and back then the internet was not that big a deal, if you'll recall. So I was literally going to libraries and looking up opportunities on in newspaper files, like silly thing, newsletters, like who has scholarships and found the organization by accident. It wasn't by accident. I was thinking serendipitous because I was like, I'm going to go back to Spain one way or another. I'd like it to be fully paid for. And I just needed to find out the how. So the house started lining up for me. It became this amazing opportunity because Maine is so close to Canada. We share a border with Quebec that the scholarship back in those days was still what I would consider big money today. It was probably be the equivalent of about 50,000 today, which yeah. is back is a lot of money mm-hmm. for a full year of study of graduate study. And they pull it, paid for my studies, paid for my housing. Um, and I got the opportunity to go speak at all different Rotary clubs all over Europe, but it was a combined Maine and Quebec, uh, scholarship. I had to be able to speak as best I could and represent both Quebec and Maine. Most people don't really speak both languages. I didn't study French, but I knew it enough having French grandparents that I, I was willing to actually spend a couple months prepping for that interview, knowing that was going to be important representing both countries. And because that, and I had that in mind, I was just very aligned to the people there. And I think I was able to connect with them on a level where they're like, yeah, we get where she wants to go. And quite frankly, I thought it seemed a little self-serving. I wanted to go to business school. They wanted to go cure the world of AIDS, which at that time was ravaging. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. These guys are amazing. And Ultimately, it was aligned for me to win. And that created another door opener for me of like, when I work hard and when I want something and when I'm aligned with it, it will happen. If it's meant for me, it will happen. And that became just a really important signal for me because that particular year when I came back, I still had my job. When I went to tell them I had won a scholarship and I'd only been working for two months and I was like, these people are probably going to throw me out in my ear. They did the complete opposite. They were like, congratulations, this is phenomenal. You're still going to work until you go next year because it was a full year away. And I said, of course, but I wanted you to know. And they said, no problem. Take a leave of absence. Come back when you get back. So I knew I had this job waiting for me if I needed it. Have you recognized that there is a pattern? Yes. Finally, because this has happened to you just recently as well. Absolutely. It's happened to me three times, which is amazing. Wow. I believe around different big moments in time where I've had a job, I've announced that I have a new opportunity and that I would have to leave the job. And then they tell me, no, actually you don't need to leave. Just take a leave of absence. 
in that case, they had me take a leave of absence because I was physically going to be away. When I came back, I actually got another job at an international organization. And at the same time, I was accepted into Georgetown University for their School of Foreign Service and Latin American Studies and MBA program. And so it was an international diplomacy program. And they were willing to pay for everything. I got a full scholarship, but I was working full time. And when I went to tell my employer, this is what happened. It's an enormous opportunity. It's full, fully paid for. I'm going to go. I guess that means I'm going to I'll resign in this in the fall. And I had found out in the spring. And they said, No, just <laughs> go to class and come to work when you can. Don't worry about it. Don't take out loans for a living. You have full tuition scholarship. Just come and work when you can. And I was like, but the hours are not going to be like nine to five for me to be here. I'm going to have class during the day. That's the way it is there. And they were like, don't worry about it. Just come when you can. And it enabled me to have continuity of work throughout that time. And then more recently, as you know, I'm an executive in a public relations firm. And I had told them that at this point in my life, I was going to need to create some space. I have a very big job. It's very demanding. And I wanted to start writing and podcasting and doing all these. And so when I sat down to tell them I was going to resign, same thing happened. They said, hold on, let's talk about this. You don't need to resign. We'll create space. Let's talk about how we do that together. It's a little counterintuitive. So it's very open and very publicly known that I have a podcast. I'm pretty sure I have quite a few followers that are colleagues, which is great. And I feel really supported. The great thing is I get to be incredibly authentic. This is who I am. This is what I'm, this is what I'm pursuing. And I know other folks that are just because the atmosphere isn't as open as where they're at, it's more difficult. And my heart goes out to them to be able to have that conversation and have the other person hear you and say, I think we can work something out. Let's not lose you. We want your light. To imagine somebody saying to you, I'm 30 years into a career now, but having someone say, your light is more important than worrying whether or not you're spending some of your time writing the book you want to write and creating a podcast that we think will benefit people. We see the value in it too. To me, it really does reflect a couple of things. One, I am incredibly blessed at this stage of my game, and I have been throughout my life to have had mentors and in my employers who see me and validate what I'm doing and for them to see the value for them in retaining me, even though I'm pursuing other things. And so I don't take that for granted, but I feel very loyal as a result, right? It's creating an environment where I really wanna do well and do right by them as much as they're doing right by me. It's a, to me, when you see people who are really secure in who they are, the ability to let people pursue the things they need that they've told you they need. It's so much easier to retain good people and help them get what they need and continue with them than starting all over with someone new. They see the value, they get it. And those are the people that are very successful versus those that feel challenged by somebody asking for something outside of the norm that feel, how can we do this? And they get all flustered and you realize, ah, they're insecure about it. And it, it's not a right or a wrong. It's just that you can observe that and recognize the person that's able to say, go do what you need to do. We'll figure it out. There's a, a security and a vision that they have that then you can buy into. Yeah. It's, you've got an incredibly wise approach and level of awareness that is so beautiful because it does require you be at a level of maturity where you need to be able to allow things happen like that. And it's, I think, the allowing and things always work out. And the things that don't work out were not meant for you. And that's something that took a while for me to recognize because there weren't that many things early on that didn't work out. And so when something didn't, all of a sudden, whatever that was, I'd be like, you know, why? 
But I realized, because it was not meant for me, had I gone down that path, I wouldn't have experienced the things that were waiting up ahead in the path I was on that I needed to go through. And we're probably better. <laughs> it's, again, like the conversation we were having about, and Steve Jobs said it so well, you cannot connect the dots moving forward. You can only connect the dots looking back. And when you get to this point, and I love being at the age I'm at right now, I feel like I have this ability to look back and recognize that all the roads, and there were so many different roads, led me exactly to this moment. And I needed to go down every one, even relationships that didn't work out. I'm married now. I've been married for almost 20 years, but I was engaged before and heartbroken when that didn't work out. Yeah. But recognize that was not meant to be. It was not meant to be. And I wouldn't have the family I have now had I gone down a different path. And I adore the family I have now. It wasn't exactly what I had envisioned, but it's exactly what I needed. Because I'm I have a husband now who I honestly, had I just seen who he is on a piece of paper, I probably would have been like, interesting, cute, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe not my type, but I met him and made, he made such an impression on me that even when I was out on a date with somebody else who on paper seemed like such a legitimate match for me, all I could think about was him. How did you meet we met through friends and it's an interesting story. I had no intention to go to a concert, but my girlfriend had bought tickets and invited me to meet her after work out at this performing arts theater. Actually, it's very popular and they do summer concert series. And apparently his friend had done the same. And I had just come back from a trip home to visit my parents with friends, with other friends. And I had just arrived that morning and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. I mean, I just flew in this morning. I've got to go to work. It was a Tuesday of all days. Who goes to concerts on Tuesdays after just coming back from a vacation? And I worked late that night. So I was like, I beat the traffic to go out to a concert. And I was living in the city at the time going, this doesn't even make sense. I'm going out into the suburbs to go to this concert. But something told me to go and I did. And I showed up late and she was like, even if you're late, just come. Yeah. And I did. And he had done the same. He had to work late. He also arrived late. We arrived around the same time because we were walking in from a satellite parking lot almost next to each other. And I was remember thinking, there's this strange guy walking behind me. I hope I'm going to be okay. And not only nothing to <laughs> worry about, I ended up marrying the guy. Yeah. Your husband, the father of your child. <laughs> The future, yeah, future father of my children was walking behind me. And I was like, if I don't make it, it's because this guy's talking me. Nothing at all to worry about. But it was far. I was parked way far away and it's a wooded area. And so it was a little unnerving. It was dark. It was nighttime. So by the time I got there, I was like, this guy's still following me. This is so bizarre. And what it turned out was my friend and his friend knew each other. And they had planned to meet without telling us that they had decided to have us all be in the same section together, picnicking on the lawn for this concert. So we, he sat down like right next to me and we're going, who are you? Just they're like, there's mercy. And I was like, okay, he's known. All right. Isn't just a random guy following me in the parking lot. So I got to briefly meet him and he was tall, dark, and handsome and quiet, completely opposite of me at that moment. And I was chatterbox and he asked for my phone number. And I remember thinking, nobody asks for their, anyone's phone number anymore and actually calls them, but all right, I'll give him my phone number. He was really, he was a nice guy. I was hoping he'd call, but had low expectations because back in those days, like people say they would call and then didn't necessarily follow up. That was the thing. He called me on a Wednesday and asked me to go out on a Friday. So I was like, okay, so we're doing this. And I'm pretty sure I broke all the dating rules possible by saying things like, 
I don't want to just date anymore. Just FYI, I'm at this point in my life where I'm more serious. <laughs> I'm in my early 30s. And I'm sure I was every guy's dream at that point having this lecture at four weeks in. But I was like, this is who I am. And this is what I'm about. And at that point, I was pretty much sure if he's going to run, it'll be now, right? Just have it be over. And I had already been engaged and had broken up an engagement at that point. So I'd gone through some stuff and he didn't run away. He was pretty firm and he was like, all right, that's who you are. Thanks for sharing. Like <laughs> on we go with our date, kill the romance, Michelle, but thanks for your honesty. Yeah, but I was, I just didn't want to be serial dating another decade later. So I was just like, here's where I'm at in my life. This is what I need. I love that. This is who I am. This is what I need. It's never worked out for me when I've pretended to go along with something that didn't feel right. So it was important for me. We were starting to hang out more. We were going out to the movies and going out to dinner and doing all the stuff. And I was like, I don't want to just do this for six months and then break up with somebody and just do it again. I'm just, I lived all of that in my twenties and I was in my early thirties when we met and he's three years younger than I am. So that was going to be an interesting dynamic, but it turned out to be not a big deal. It's perfect. Look, we are very different. He, he's from Peru. I grew up in New England. A lot of common values, despite the fact that we're from different worlds. Yeah. We both come from very hardworking families, very salt of the earth people, but we both had big dreams of doing big things. And he's in, he has an incredible work ethic. I clearly am this talker. He's much more tall, dark, handsome, and quieter. He's the introvert. I'm the extrovert. But he's the, his love language is to do things. If I need something done, it's done before I even know that it needed to happen because he's just on it. He's on it. And every single stage of my life, whatever big thing, whether it was a big promotion that I was pursuing or motherhood or podcasting or what have you, he's been incredibly supportive. If anything, if somebody asked him, we're out to dinner with neighbors actually in earlier in January, and they were all excited to talk about the podcast and we were talking about the new year and all this stuff. And they said, wow, you've got a lot on your plate and looked at Percy and they said, so what's your role in all of this? And he had this beautiful response where he was like, my role is to make sure she feels 110% supported so that she can go do whatever it is she decides to, she wants to do next. That level of support and confidence is so beautiful. It's amazing. And I know that like, whatever I need, like helping to figure out, I didn't know microphones from anything else and equipment. You I know, I can't say that I'm always super romantic when I'm doing podcasting at midnight, <laughs> but I do think he's proud of me. I do think he feels the sense of, I'm not just on autopilot at this point in my life. But but I that think was it is so important that you actually have, I'm sure you're aware of it, but there is pattern of your professional and private lives being surrounded always by people that first of all, you have the ability and confidence to communicate, this is what I need and this is what I want. And then they all come with all their powers and skills to support you to make it happen. And that is the attribute of actually who you are and who you became. But I wanted to go back also to, I know the story on a bus, but there are two aspects that I thought were really powerful and I now repeated to myself. So first of all, is first thing, thing when you wake up, you have a particular routine and mm. what you tell yourself. And maybe that actually started as the outcome of you being on the bus. So can you tell us the story of the bus journey, which is what I yeah. call the bus journey? And then yeah. we'll go into the morning routine because that morning routine, I think, is it's powerful and so simple but yet the impact it has on you and the shift in your own energy is, I could feel it when I did it for myself. It's very grounding. Yeah. So I, 26 years ago now, I was 26 and living here in Washington, DC. And I had just come back from overseas. I was working full time. I had become a communications director of this international organization I worked for. I was going to school full-time for graduate school here at Georgetown. And I was finding myself 
increasingly exhausted. It started off with, it was starting to pile up. I had a lot of work at work. I had a lot of work at school. I was staying up later. I wasn't getting enough sleep. I was skipping meals because I was running between class and work to try to fit it all in. And quite frankly, to please everybody because people had been so accommodating to me, both the university, I had actually gotten accepted and told them no, because they didn't have the money. And then they came back and said, we have a partial scholarship for you. And I said, jokingly, when you have a full one, call me back. <laughs> and they did. They called me back and said, we have a full scholarship, come. So they were so accommodating. So I was on scholarship, which I think puts, but when you're on a scholarship, you do feel, I think this level of pressure to maintain for me. But what was happening was I was getting worn down. I was physically getting worn down. And what happens over time, as we all know, when we physically get worn down, we eventually start to mentally get worn down. Yeah. And I found myself losing ground with my mental health. And I had never experienced it quite in the way it was unfolding. It went from feeling a little disconnected from everything and a little blue and a little out of it to every day, every week, and now going into months, it was getting harder to just function. And I was doing it all. I was going through all the motions and doing all the things, but just feeling incredibly exhausted and burnt out. And I didn't realize it at the time, I was very depressed. And it was a physical manifestation. It wasn't that it started as depression, it started off as I was physically not giving myself the space to rest and recover. And so I backed myself into this corner until one day I literally could barely get myself out of bed. And by the time I did manage to get myself out of bed, I, was on the 10th floor of an apartment building. I remember looking out into Washington, DC, because I had a view of part of Georgetown and the city and just thinking, ugh, wouldn't it be such a relief if I just jumped? Uh, and as I said that, <laughs> I had, that moment of, I'm so tired, I can barely get my head around what I've just said to myself in my head, but I was scared. It definitely scared me and jolted me into, wait, what is happening? I can't believe I've let this get so out of hand. So I grabbed a coat, I got out of the apartment and out of imminent danger in that moment and got on a bus. And I got on this bus, it's what we call the 30 buses that run through Georgetown. At that time, you could still get the bus pretty close to the White House and then it would do a loop back. And I rode the bus because it seemed like the safest place to be at the moment. And I melted into the window, I pushed myself as far away to try to be as invisible as possible. Someone who's incredibly extroverted and on all the time, all of a sudden feeling so overcome that all I could do was sit on the bus and sob that I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I was afraid to go home because obviously I was having a moment of mental health crisis. And I had a great will to live. So the fact that those thoughts were coming through my head terrified me and I felt stuck. I felt like, I don't know what to do. So I sat on that bus and did one entire loop, which is a good hour. And then the bus driver kept looking at me like she's not getting off the bus. Like when I'm stuck with this girl on the bus who's sobbing on the bus, but he had the wherewithal to give me some space. And I just sunk deeper into my seat and against the window and let the tears flow readily. But about halfway through the second loop, he was like, are you planning to get off the bus? And I knew I needed to make a decision. And it was at that time, I literally looked up and said, okay, God, I surrender. Like you decide what happens next. And what happened next is still an outer body experience because I looked up and the bus stopped and right at the cross section of the street that the bus stopped at was a sign that I had never seen before that said community mental health center. 
And I was like, okay, this is the sign. I'm getting off the bus here and I'm going in. I had never asked for help before. I didn't know what that would even look like. I didn't have an appointment. And so I just walked in off the street and said, waited until somebody came out and said, can we help you? And I was like, I sure hope so, because I'm having a really rough day. That's the culmination of some really rough months. And that sort of was the beginning of a complete change in approach to my life because I was a workhorse. I still am a workhorse, but I was a workhorse that was young who just kept pushing through everything, every illness, every injury, every whatever, and was young enough to bounce back before that moment. And at this point, I was starting to wear myself down to where my physical health was impacting my mental health. And I had somebody, the funny thing is the therapist who I ended up seeing that day, I sat down and immediately argued with and said, I don't think you can help me, but okay, I'll tell you what's happening. And because I think the universe just knows who to send us her messengers. The person who is the therapist was a former AOL executive who had taken a buyout, left the company, left the whole corporate world after 30 years of working and had become a therapist. So not only could understand where I was coming That's from, good. probably understood everything I was saying about what my, how I had gotten to where I was and the yep. work experience. And I remember going, oh, maybe you do know. <laughs> This is interesting. I didn't expect that. I expected someone who would not be able to identify with me. And instead I got somebody who knew exactly where I was at the stage of my career and how much I had on my plate and how much hard it was to juggle. And the fact that I had stopped taking care of myself physically and I had become very thin. I think that's women. We do that, right? We want to be all the things. And I let myself get dangerously thin and dangerously malnourished. I skipped a lot of meals because I didn't have time and I just didn't put the emphasis there. I thought I could get by. So I would eat one meal a day kind of thing. And it was always on the run. I don't think it's conscious. At one point in my life, I was 47 kilos or something, which is, I think that's in kilos in pounds is times 2.2. Which is very Not a lot, like barely over a hundred pounds. And yeah. your story is very similar. When you, I used to say, I'm skin and a bone. There is nothing left. And it's not conscious. It's not like you go, I don't have time to eat. It doesn't even cross your mind that you have not eaten. All I could think of is all the things I need to get done. Okay. That was what was important. And all the commitments I had to so many people. So was there a trigger, particular trigger that one thing made it explode or? Probably accounting. (laughs) I was doing an MBA course and accounting was required. And man, that was so outside of my realm of interest. And I think it just, I went into, it, it was the fall and I was going into finals for the fall with mononucleosis. I had developed a case of mono because I was just so not taking care of myself. And that really threw my mental health. You don't know why you're so fatigued. You, I could have been really fatigued because I wasn't sleeping. Right. But I was beyond that. I'd gotten sick. And with mononucleosis, it's that silent disease. You don't really see, you don't have a sore throat necessarily. I didn't have a headache, but I was really tired beyond the normal. And I couldn't, no matter, no much, no matter how much sleep I would try to catch up on, it was never enough on the weekends. So I, I just had a double whammy, like all these things were coming at the same time. But the really interesting thing was I wasn't even with that therapist for very long, but it was monumentally helpful to have somebody who could speak my language of achievement. That is unbelievable. I, I think that oh, the universe knew that nobody else would actually be able to argue with me and say, like, like, we need to send somebody in who's going to be able to shut her down on all the things she thinks she knows, but doesn't. And that was helpful to have somebody who was my age now working with me to say, how do you know that's true? Why is that true in your mind? And she kept saying, but why? And then 
for the first time in my life, which it's going oh. to sound crazy for the first time in my life, someone said, what do you, what makes you happy? That threw me into a tailspin. What makes me happy? My language is what do I need to do to succeed? Like happiness was supposed to come as a result of working hard at whatever I was endeavoring to achieve, not the other way around. And she said, okay, we need to start at the beginning and we need to unpeel a lot of these belief systems that you have. And she's like, look, the really great thing is you've achieved a lot. You're super young and you've achieved a lot. So you know you can. Now, what do you want to do with the fact that you know how to achieve? Where do you want to be? feel that you achieved a lot? I did. I Have knew that I was successful. I knew that I was doing pretty well. Yeah. But I had bigger dreams. I was living in an apartment and I wanted a giant white house with a picket fence and all the things. And I wanted to go jet off to Saint-Tropez and all of these things as one does. And so those things hadn't happened, but the degrees and the scholarships and the promotions and jobs came very easily for me. And I had friends. I came to the city not knowing anybody. I didn't have a single relationship here. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any family here. I didn't have a trouble meeting people and making friendships, but I was incredibly lonely because I was in this space that not a lot of people wanted to be in. I worked really hard. I was rising up a ladder. I was going to grad school at the same time. And that group of people that are willing to do that at that age all at the same time, it's you're in a small circle of people. And so I spent a lot of time on my own even though I had friends and I could go out with people. And I did, I did go out and we did have fun, but I was always felt like I was a little bit of the- Different. Yeah, I was a bit of an odd duck. Like a lot of people were just enjoying their twenties and I was busting my butt the whole time because I had this, by this time I wanna have achieved this and by that time I will have achieved that. Sitting down that day, with the therapist, first of all, for me was a little bit, it was, I was dealing with stigma because back then we didn't talk about mental health issues. And it was hard for me to recognize until I had a sign staring me in the face saying community mental health center, this is the sign that means you get off the bus. Until that happened, I don't know that I would have sought out help. It was yeah. not something that was top of mind for me. I didn't think I needed it. Like we never do. And then when I got in there and I realized I had so much to talk about <laughs> and then I had to like pace myself of don't make therapy an achievement place as well, be a sanctuary for you from that. And then, it, but then it became a, ah, oh, okay, wait, I can still achieve things, but find a different approach to how I'm living. And I should factor in being happy while I do it, not as a destination after I achieve the things. Just such oh. a thing. Wow. Okay. I'm going to get right on that. And all of the discipline I had about anything I'd ever done in my life, studies, work, I started with personal development and I went all in. I was anybody I could read and back then, like the early days were like people like Stephen Covey were out and Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra were just starting to become something. They hadn't even really arrived yet. And I would read everything. I would watch everything. Back then, it was listen. We would have cassette tapes, right? <laughs> oh, no, those hadn't even arrived yet, I don't think. Maybe oh, they were the tapes. early tapes. tapes. And then the CDs came, but I would listen to all of them over and over again and realize there were some people out there that were looking at life very differently from the way I had approached it and that were still achieving really amazing things in their field, but they were incorporating joy as a path, not joy as a destination. And that was like, blew my mind. Yeah. Like, I need to be happy in the moment in order to actually go the distance. What I had done 
on sheer willpower and hard work ethic was only going to get me to where I had gotten. And if I was going to go through the ceiling to the roof and create new rules, that was going to require a whole different approach than the one I had for the previous 26 years of my life. And so that began that whole journey of personal development in deep, fully. But what is amazing is that at 26, you had that. A lot of people don't get it until mid forties, but it's, there are so many, I used to call myself a powerhouse. You used to call yourself a power <laughs> or a power, a, a workhorse. Carrying, yeah. Carrying all of this. And then I had a similar moment. You say, someone asked you, what makes you happy? I remember when I was asked, what brings you joy, Susanna? And I was like, joy, I know how to spell it, but joy, but I could not define what joy actually represented. I had no idea either. It was so alarming to me. First of all, I had the, what does it matter moment? Like, are we going to talk about things that matter to me? Like I've got work to get back to. I have finals to take. Let's get on with this. It was completely clueless. And then I couldn't answer the question. I really had never spent any amount of time in my life contemplating what brought me joy, which feels hard to comprehend because I did when I was really young and I would spend all of my days in the summer with my siblings as a young kid, climbing trees, forging streams, playing make-believe, having a wild imagination. And I found great joy in that. But I had forgotten all of that. And as an adult, I wasn't going to say, I need to go climb a tree and forge a stream and be out in nature. But there was something in there where I would recall, they're like, tell me about a time you felt joyful. And it took me a really long time to be like, when I was growing up, before I started really getting into hard studies, there was a moment of freedom that my summers had where I was eight, nine years old, playing in the woods, completely free of schedules and achieving things. So I grew up spiritual, but not super religious. We were Catholic, but, and we did go to church on Sundays when we were younger, but I wasn't particularly religious. That said, I'm on this journey that really is eternal and Instead of thinking about what can I get and who can help me get it, I started to ask, so if the point is connection, how may I serve? I knew I had certain gifts. I could write, I was good at public speaking, and I liked to connect with people. Okay, so how may I serve? And I would say that over and over again. Every day, every morning, I would wake up and say, okay, God, how may I serve? and wait to see what would happen. And it was interesting, nothing happened for a while. And I remember thinking, I'm in the wrong place or nobody's listening. <laughs> and it, I think the interesting part is like when you stop being attached to the outcome of the question, when you ask the question and just let it go, and you just know that you're gonna be put in the spot that you need to be put, it'll happen. And that's what started to happen. And I remember thinking that I had to be in a certain environment for that to really be the right thing. And what I realized that was I was so well equipped to be in a corporate environment where people were really out of touch and where I was starting to have all these epiphanies and I could speak the language and I could excel, but I could do it in a way that was more human and I wasn't competing with anyone. That was a real game changer for me. The only person I was really in competition with was myself, and it was no longer a competition. When I stopped treating it like a race, and I started treating it like my life and my masterpiece, and what do I want in my life, not what do I have to get out of my life, things started to really change. Then those experiences became less transactional with people and became moments of real engagement. And then it became 
and I'm sure you've gone through this, where you start to collect relationships, you collect experiences, you realize that is what creates an extraordinary life. Not the stuff. The stuff is nice. Don't get me wrong. I like the stuff. And I do think we have deep, meaningful relationships where you can sit down wherever you are in the world, where whoever it is, no matter if you've known them for five minutes or five years or 15 years or what have you, and open up and be honest about whatever the conversation. It's like you and I can sit down after five minutes of meeting and then immediately feel connected at a soul level because we recognize that we are all connected. And once you realize that, then the question is, how may I serve? How is what I have for gifts and my experience going to serve you and your life and your experience? And what is it? What door are you going to open that I need to walk through? And that's why we're here. We're here to help each other go down these paths and open more doors and go down new pathways together. And that some of these people that were in our lives were in our lives for the season, but they're not the ones that were supposed to be on the journey now. And there are new people that need to join you on this journey that are going to have the resources and the experience and the understanding to continue this path. They, if you notice the journey that we're on, it's not a lot of people, but you start to immediately recognize who you're going to start walking down with. You don't need a lot of people, but you do need people to go down the journey with you. It's interesting. I think as we, certainly it's been the case for me as I've aged, that I've gone from evaluating somebody based on what they've done and what they've achieved and where they've gone, because God knows it wasn't my pedigree out of the gate, but it became very important for me to establish one. So I was looking for the same, I will have a husband that has these different qualities, went to these schools and did these things. And the interesting part is you realize that I actually had that. I was engaged to that. It did not work out well. It was actually very combustible for me. And when I got away from that situation and started to realize that where I was going to be surrounded by people who made me feel that I could be the best version of me. So now I don't even know, like it's, I generally know what everybody around me is doing and what they're up to, but it's not a common conversation of what promotion are you up for or any of that sort of thing. But I do have a good, strong feeling about how I show up in the presence of somebody else, how it makes me feel, and if I can be my most authentic self around them, and if their presence brings out the best in me, and if I can bring out the best in them. And that's the exchange. So it became like a no-brainer for me, like with my husband, I'm the best version of me because I'm with him. First time in my adult life, I've been with him now for a really long time, but before that, I would look for the other person to make me feel good about myself, right? If they adored me, if they adored me with affection and love and what have you, then I would say, oh, okay, then I'm valid. I feel good about me. And that's no longer the case. I'm now in a place in the space and time where I realize, first of all, I need to love me in order to show up the best version of me for the people in my life before I can look for somebody else to love me properly. If I don't love me, as awkward as it can sometimes be to say, it's so important because that level of self-acceptance gives you the space and the peace to then show up without an agenda of needing something from someone. Yes. I feel great peace in my life before anybody comes into my space. So then when they show up, it's additive. It's not to fill a hole and a void in me. I already feel like I can do that on my own. Neediness is not very attractive and it's also very short-lived. And when you no longer need someone to validate who you are 
then they can love you. You create the space for them to actually love you, which is what's happened. And not just your spouse or your significant other or your children, but other people. I can sit across from you and say, I know what you bring. And that's the part where we've connected at that level. I know that we'll connect at that level in 20 years. I'll tell you another story. My grandmother was an incredibly important force in my life. Having been born to teenage parents, they could not do it alone. And my paternal grandparents really played a stabilizing role in my life very early on. We didn't, we lived with them initially until my dad could manage to save up enough money working two jobs, including mill work and what have you to afford our own place. And those early years of living with my grandmother and grandfather created a bond with them that lasted, I I know they're looking over me today even, but it lasted throughout my life, their lifetimes with me. And my grandmother had gone through, my grandparents went through a lot. They were, they had eight children. My dad was the youngest of eight. So I was one of the youngest of all the grandchildren along with my siblings, but she lost a daughter who was eight years old to diphtheria. She lost a son in Korean war. She was giving birth to my father at 40 and had to leave him in the hospital to attend her 19 year old son's funeral. His body had just been shipped back from the war in Korea. She overcame ovarian cancer at a time in the seventies when nobody overcame cancer. And she had gone through all this. In the meantime, losing two children made my grandfather a raging alcoholic, understandably. They couldn't even be there with their eight-year-old daughter because she was suffering from diphtheria, not unlike what we went through with COVID. When that happened to a family, you were quarantined to your home. The child was taken away and brought to the hospital and she died alone in the hospital with the nuns. And my grandparents couldn't be there. So my grandmother had to continue to take care of her other children and literally mourn the death silently and move on. And it devastated my grandfather. My grandmother, having gone through all of this and dealing with a husband who couldn't be there to support her because he was so devastated. And then to have a son who a lot of things happened in their lifetime, but then my dad got my mom pregnant and my mother's family went bananas and disowned my mother. It was a big scandal and they all lived in the same small little town were neighbors, so it was a big deal. And they showed up big time for me and made me feel so much love and made me feel like I was the most important thing in the world. And I never felt shame I didn't know what that was until later on and realized like when I did the math that I came a little too early after my parents' nuptials, but they made me feel like I was everything and then some, and that made such a world of difference in my life. And it wasn't until after I met my husband and I was married, my grandmother made it through my wedding. She was in her nineties and she passed away she knew that was the last time she would see us i was sitting there with all my degrees and you and i could talk about how many master's degrees we all have and looking at my grandmother's life my grandmother barely graduated high school she had nothing she was a seamstress she lost an eight-year-old daughter she lost a 19-year-old son to war she continued in a marriage with my grandfather until his death as a raging alcoholic. And she never once said a bad word to anyone. She was always happy, very joyful. I never felt anything but safe and warm and loved in that environment with that woman. My grandmother embodied it. Like we all fought, here we were all professionals roaming the universe, doing our own lives. If grandmother was going home, we were all going home to see her no matter what we had going on in our lives. We dropped everything to go see her because she made us feel so loved and she was so joyful. And she had more impact in her life than anyone I knew. Everybody loved her. 
And I just sat there going, oh my God, I just realized that everything I've ever wanted to embody, this woman embodied. And I went all around the world looking for it. And here it is. She like was joyful in every minute of her life. She enjoyed it thoroughly. When I lived in Spain, she sent me a care package every month of things that nobody else would understand, but like canned tomatoes and jarred pickles and all the things that grandmothers do for you, right? And a letter, a handwritten letter to say, you are so loved. Because back then there was no email, there was no Zoom, there were no smartphones, we were doing snail mail. And to spend the little money she had to send me a very expensive air freight box of stuff to let me know that I was loved. She had the most profound impact probably of any individual in my life. She's totally transformed the way I showed up after that. And then when my grandmother passed, I was like, I want to have an impact. I want to know that my life mattered. My grandmother's life mattered. You just answered my question. I was going to say is what does success mean for you? I want to know that my life meant something that because I lived, I inspired someone. I gave love to someone who needed it. I made someone's life better. So if in the process I can experience the lovely experience of things, fabulous. I'm not going to deny the fact that I like bubbles and I like shiny things and I like a good vacation and I love beautiful homes. I appreciate all those things. But if I had those things and felt like it didn't matter that I existed, it would be for nothing. Like I don't worry about money. I grew up with nothing and I worried about it a lot when I was younger. And as a result, I perpetually felt stress and pressure. Even when I was earning it, I felt pressure. Like it's never enough. It's not enough anymore. And now I've gotten to a place where I actually know what's going to be there. Money is a resource. I want the experience of what money can give me, not the money itself, right? We all want the freedom that it gives us. And when I'm in that mindset and I stay in that mindset as much as I possibly can, when I get pushed off the horse, I work to get right back on it to be in the mindset of money flows easily into my life. If there would be anything you would change, would you change anything? I don't think I would change the events. I would want to be able to recognize sooner that my response to the events of my life was the most important thing that I had. I think early on for me, particularly the sense of poverty mindset was really big. I knew I was going to be successful. I always knew that. I didn't have a question in my mind because it was told to me over and over again. But I watched my mother sacrifice and I recognize now, even now, after all these years, or she'll be like, oh, that's too expensive. Don't, you don't spend your money. And for me, the joy that I get of saying, that's why it's here. Let me give it for you. Let me give to you the things that you didn't think you could have back then because we didn't have the resources because the money is flowing abundantly now. Don't cut that off for me. <laughs> Let me do that. Hey. It took me a while to get there. Yeah. Giving is also actually, a lot of people don't recognize that, but giving is really important because that exchange is really, you have to keep it flowing. You have to. So I think that's it. Like for me, I've started to realize that all those difficult moments and there were many difficult moments and I'm sure they're still going to be, but being able to connect the dots and realize I needed that to happen in order to shape me, in order to arrive to where I am today. So for me to say, I wish I didn't have to go through that is disingenuous because then I wouldn't be where I am today and I wouldn't be sitting across from you right now having this conversation. Everything led to this moment. So looking back, you are six years old. 
and you're speaking to the six-year-old, you must be saying, you've done well, you didn't need to worry so much. Absolutely. And you know what? You can enjoy their journey a little more. The early years, and my son jokes, he's, you are the most childlike mother I've ever seen. And I'm always like, oh, you're welcome. Yay, me. Like, awesome. I look younger than them too because I play more. Because I didn't do that as a kid as much. Like I got to that place where I got very serious very quickly because of the studies. And I'd love to go back and tell the six-year-old, go have more fun. It's okay. It's okay. Go play some more. Go play harder. You're going to do well. It's all going to work out. Go enjoy the flowers. Go play in the woods a little bit longer. The homework will be there. So for me, and I say this to him, do whatever brings you joy. Money will come. And I really believe that now. Someone told me that when I was in my 20s and I was like, spoken like somebody who does not have the money I have. <laughs> and I was like, no, actually they were onto something. And I wish I had known that a little bit sooner and believed it. Now I do. I realize when you resonate highly because you're so passionate about what you do, it just falls into money will flow. And so now I think he knows that he's learning all of these things. Your children are learning these things much sooner than we did. And they're going to grow up and have impact in ways that, you know, are profound. Yeah. So much wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. It feels good to be able to connect with you and to know that you are so resonant with it. And you're right. We could spend the entire night talking on my end and the entire day on your end. All right, my friend. Enjoy your day. Love you.